1: sturdy, strong, three foot long piece of rope. Three feet long, strong, sturdy, and it's my rope. I brought it. And now you're wondering, what is Mike going to do with his rope, right? You're wondering, what is Mike going to do with his rope? But the real question is, what are you going to do with your rope? Every single one of us has a rope. Some of us have a longer rope, some of us have a shorter rope. For some of us, the rope is thick and strong and sturdy. For others, it's fragile, frayed, and at the point of breaking. But the truth is that every single one of us has a rope. And sooner or later, you're gonna find yourself at the end of your rope. (laughs) And that's what I wanna talk about today. What to do with the end of your rope. Because sooner or later, you're going to be at the end of your rope. And you need to know what to do with the end of your rope in order to be successful in life. So turn with me in our Father's Word as we find out exactly what to do with the end of your rope. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40 in our Father's Word. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Where did Jesus return from? He returned from the area of Gerasenes. This is the situation where Jesus had cast out the legion of demons. Remember the Gentile, the non-Jewish guy, who had so many evil spirits plaguing him, so many, that they were called legion. Jesus says, what's your name? He says, we are legion, for we are many. And he casts those demons out of the man, and they go into the pigs, off the cliff, into the abyss of the water below and they drown this is the scene when right after that Jesus goes back they get into the boat they go back to Jewish territory and this is where we pick it up now when Jesus returned returned to a predominantly Jewish area the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him Luke is presenting to us the understanding the idea that Jesus popularity is going through the roof we get this sense more and more through the gospel, through all of the gospel accounts, that Jesus finds it increasingly difficult to get away with his disciples to a private place, to an alone place. The paparazzi are all over the place. The first century paparazzi are there following Jesus. They were all waiting for him. Verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Again, the implication, the indication that this is a predominantly Jewish area, a Jewish group of people that Jesus is reaching and falling at Jesus feet. Look at the posture here. He implored him to come to his house. Jesus has just come back from casting out thousands of demons from a man. They've had a boat trip. Give the man a break. Would you please? No. Jairus falls at Jesus' feet, implores him, begins to plead with him about his situation. He implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, one daughter, one child. Interesting that the word that's used there for the only daughter is the same word that's used in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This is Jairus's one and only daughter. About 12 years of age and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, Someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this answer, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Knowing that she was dead But taking her by the hand he called her saying child arise and her spirit returned and she got up at once And he directed that something should be given her to eat and her parents were amazed or charged them to tell no one what had happened There are not many issues that we face in life more pressing more perplexing more discouraging more disappointing than facing an incurable disease or the death of a child. Not many things are more perplexing, more frustrating, more depressing, more discouraging than facing an incurable disease or the death of a child. And we have both of those instances right here in scripture for good reason. We have a physician who's written the account. His name is Luke. And he's particularly interested in these events. They're grouped together, and I think for good reason. There are some parallels here. We have a young girl. We could call her Sleeping Beauty. She died. She's been living for 12 years. She's 12 years old. And we have a woman. She's an outcast. She's completely unclean. And she's been struggling with a health issue for the same length of time, for 12 years. There's faith involved in both of these families, both of these situations. Faith is integral and substantial and significant in both situations. And they are both at the end of the rope. Look with me, for instance, verse 43. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she, she could not be healed by anyone. This is an incurable, unclean outcast. We know this because in Leviticus chapter 15, beginning in verse 19, if we were to go there, there are certain things that women go through in the course of a year, month to month certain things that are unique to a woman. In the book of Leviticus, it explains to us very clearly that during that time of the month, the gynecological issue that a woman faces makes her unclean, ceremonially unclean. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, makes it very clear that when a woman is unclean at that particular time, she is to provide purification for herself. Symbolically, she goes through a ritual where certain things are to be done, and spiritually speaking, she is pronounced clean if she goes through the ritual. If she doesn't go through the ritual, she can't be declared as clean. And in the book of Leviticus, it makes it very clear that everything the woman touches during that time, everything the woman touches, becomes unclean. If she sits on something, it becomes unclean. The bed that she lies down in becomes unclean. Not only things that she's to touch, but if she touches another human being, that person also becomes unclean. There's to be no marital intimacy during that particular time of the month between the woman and the man. It makes it very clear in the book of Leviticus. And if a woman finds herself outside of the normal time of her monthly unclean Loneliness. If that were to be the case and there was additional flow of blood, as is the case here in Luke chapter 8, where God is not sanitizing the reality, these would be the kind of situations that we would avoid if we were trying to sanitize the scriptures. But the Bible presents warts and all. This is a real historic event that took place. If the woman was to be unclean at any other time or there was a flow of blood in addition to the regular time that it could be expected, that would be considered to be an unclean time as well. And the woman, anything she touched, anybody she touched would also be unclean. You can read it in the book of Leviticus for yourself. Now, this woman's problem was that for 12 years, she had spent All of her money. She did not have a retirement fund anymore. She didn't have a 401k. She had spent all of her money on physicians and doctors. This probably would have gotten the attention of our physician who wrote this gospel, Luke. She's out of money. She's out of hope. She's at the end of a rope. We know that because of the Levitical law, she's an outcast. She's unclean. Everybody and anybody she touches, anything she touches, unclean, ceremonially unclean. And we know from the way this account is conveyed to us, that the crowd is significant. In verse 45, Jesus says, who was it that touched me when all denied it? In other words, the woman denied it. The crowd denied it. And it's kind of a ridiculous thing, really. What are you talking about, Jesus? Somebody touched you. Look what it says in verse uh, 45. Peter says, don't you love Peter? Peter says, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. The words that are used there really are equivalent to being crushed. Of course somebody touched you. What are you talking about, somebody touched you? Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. Somebody touched me in a particular way so that power came out from me. Healing power came out from me. That's what Jesus says. Verse 46, Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Now, some would look at this particular passage of Scripture, and they would postulate that Jesus was ignorant. No, it's not that Jesus was ignorant. This is a passage that conveys to us the omniscience of Jesus. It's that he's omniscient, not that he's ignorant. He knows who it is that has touched him. What Jesus is about to do is roll up his sleeves and provide a testimony for everybody as to his identity. It is the identity of Jesus that's always at stake. It's the identity of Jesus that's always under attack. And it's the identity of Jesus that's always brought forth in the scriptures. Every passage of scripture has a main point, a main thrust, a main teaching. And this particular passage of scripture is no exception. Yes, there are nuances. You say, but Mike, this is a scripture written by God. Can't God provide nuances and flavors and other Particular teachings that are there in addition to the main teaching, of course. But we want to make sure that the main thing is the main thing. And the main thing in this particular passage of scripture that's being brought forth is not a teaching about faith being essential in order for God to heal. The main teaching that's being presented here is the identity of Jesus as the healer that many people were touching Jesus, the crowd is pressing in, crushing him. Many people would have been touching Jesus. Many people would have uh, been in that crowd. But this one particular person draws near to Jesus, believes that Jesus is someone who can change her situation, believes that Jesus is able to do what none of the others whom she would have been touching were able to do, And Jesus recognizes it. Power, healing power goes out from Jesus just from this woman touching the fringe of his garment. And Jesus recognizes that you can't pull anything over Jesus. Nothing gets by Jesus. It's not that he's ignorant. It's that he's omniscient. He knew. And this woman is fearful for good cause because she knows that if she is found out, she now will be legally, according to the law of the Old Testament, she will be legally responsible for, responsible for making everybody in the crowd unclean, including, including Jesus. So she's got a big problem on her hands that makes her physical ailment pale by comparison. And look what happens. Jesus says, don't tell me your perception of this situation, Peter. I don't need your interpretation to educate me on the fact that people have been touching me. I mean, Peter, by this point, Peter, do you not understand that Jesus is a pretty intelligent person, even though you're not totally understanding who he is yet? Does Jesus really need Peter's commentary on, Lord, this crowd that's crushing in, that's pressing against you, that has been waiting for you since you came back from Gentile territory, um, you know, they've, they've all been touching you. Jesus says in verse 46, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out for me. Oh, it's a power issue. Look at the woman's response. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. See, what Jesus is doing is giving the woman an opportunity to provide a testimony that Jesus is unique among all others. She was at the end of her rope, and now who is at the end of her rope? Jesus. Jesus. She finally comes to the great physician and only he is able to do what none of the experts were able to do. You've tried everything else in your life. You've exhausted your money. You've gone to the experts. Now it's time to go to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now it's time to go to the great physician who knows how to heal. All you need to do is come to him in humility and make yourself available to him and he will make himself available to you. She touches the fringe of Jesus' garment and she is instantaneously, miraculously, supernaturally healed. Now, up to that point, the question would have been: now, what will the rabbi think of me since I have broken the law in the Old Testament? I've made him unclean. I've made all the people unclean. And what is the response of Jesus? Look with me at verse 48. He said to her, daughter. Words of comfort, words of encouragement, when Jesus could have condemned could have spoken negatively against her. Instead, he speaks words of relationship and affirmation. At a time when she was an outcast, this woman wouldn't have been able to sit down and have a had to have a cup of tea with somebody else because she would have made the household unclean of the person. She could have gone to their house and just expressed, "I'm I'm feeling down. I'm feeling dejected. It's been 10 years. It's been 11 years. It's been 12 years, and I've been dealing with this issue." She couldn't have even gone to somebody's house and poured her heart out without making that household unclean. And finally to hear these words of comfort and affinity from Jesus to be called a daughter. Imagine how hope swelled up inside of her. How a smile must have arisen on her face to hear Jesus pronounce these words, your faith has made you well, go in peace. No, what did you do? You made all these people unclean. You touched the hem of my garment. You made me unclean. See, the response of Jesus is significant because in responding this way, Jesus is demonstrating that he's not made unclean as a mere mortal would have been made unclean. Jesus is showing that he, the, the lawgiver, the word became flesh, is above the law. And who can be above the law to, be, to remain clean when any and every other mere mortal would have been made unclean if this was not just a regular person? This is all about the identity of Jesus Christ. It's all about the significance of Jesus doing what only a priest could have done, only what God himself could do through the priest, which is to pronounce somebody clean. Now, there are some people who will look at a passage like this and say, this is all about faith. You know, when I was in college, I went to a Word of Faith church for a while. And if you know anything about a word of faith church, it puts you and me in the driver's seat. If I have enough faith, then God can do what I ask him to do. If I don't have enough faith, then God won't do what I ask him to do. In fact, some would go so far as to say the reason why God's not moving in your life is because you have a lack of faith. And if only you had more faith, then God would move on your behalf. Now, I'm not saying that this woman did not have faith. She clearly has faith, and it is integral to the story. But there is another young woman in this passage, grouped together, who upsets the apple cart, and she is the 12-year-old daughter. Look with me, verse 51, when they came to the house, he allowed Jesus no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. She was dead. As dead as a doorknob. She's dead. These people knew that she was dead. Jesus says she's sleeping, which seems to be an indication. Of the continuity of scripture, 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 19. People who believe in Jesus, though they die physically, are said to be sleeping because your, de- your, your final state when you are a follower of Jesus is not death, but life. But humanly speaking, physiologically speaking, this girl is dead. Now, Where's her faith? If faith is a necessary prerequisite for somebody to get healed, where's this little 12-year-old girl's faith as an essential ingredient for her own healing? It's not there. Have you seen a dead person express saving faith recently? When was the last time you saw a dead person express the kind of faith in God, in Jesus, that would raise them back from the dead? You haven't found one. In fact, we don't seem to have any indication whatsoever that even the mother and father believed. In fact, the indication here in Scripture is that everyone's making a mockery of Jesus. You're out of your mind. You get this sense when you read the Scriptures that again and again, people are trying to correct Jesus. You don't understand Jesus. And of course, none of us have done that. You don't understand, Jesus. My situation is different. This is the end of my rope. I've got no place else to go. You don't understand. There's no indication whatsoever that this little girl's family believed. They are being taken in tow by Jesus into the room. Peter, James, and John, the mother and father in Jesus, that is it. You've gotta be careful that you don't twist the scriptures and put yourself in the driver's seat as if it is only and always up to you as the determinant of whether or not God moves. Listen, God is gonna give himself glory whether or not you're on the boat or off the boat, in the car, out of the car. You just need to get out of the way. I need to get out of the way and allow God to do what only he can do, which is bring glory to his name. This is a passage of scripture that is not so much about faith as much as it is about the identity of Jesus Christ. If he can heal somebody who others couldn't heal, if he can pronounce somebody clean who others couldn't pronounce clean, then he must not be some mere mortal. If Jesus is able to raise a girl from the dead when others couldn't do anything and they would have it was beyond hope, they were at the end of their rope, if Jesus can do that, it is about the identity of Jesus. Now listen. The identity of Jesus is not still open for debate. You've got to be very careful. I've got to be very careful. Listen, follow me on this one. You've got to be really careful that you're not still trying to debate and determine whether or not Jesus really is the Son of Man, the Son of God, God in the flesh. And the circumstances in your life and mine will, by nature, bring us to the end of our rope and cause us, if we're not careful, to put Jesus back on trial as if it's up to us in our circumstances in the 21st century to determine whether or not Jesus really is who the Bible says he is. The reason why this particular story, as in all the other stories in Scripture, is here is for us to settle the issue. It's set in stone. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. He's not a mere mortal. That's why it's here. It was settled 2,000 years ago. What more evidence do we need for Pete's sake than the resurrection itself? All of the gospel of Luke is building and leading up to the culminating crown jewel on the whole life ministry and teachings of Jesus, which is the resurrection, God the Father's ultimate statement of, yes, the life of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. I accept for the forgiveness of everyone's sins. All they need to do is call out on me for the forgiveness. But you've got to be careful that you don't put Jesus on trial again and again based on your circumstances and try to make this a passage about, oh, I just need to have more faith. Listen, the girl who was dead didn't have any faith. And listen, by the way, Jesus did not need Peter, James, and John or the mother and father to go here in this situation. In Luke chapter 7, there's a situation with a centurion who had a servant who was worth a lot of money to him, who was near death. Jesus doesn't even go there. Jesus doesn't even go to the guy's house. He's on his way. The centurion believes that Jesus is someone who's unique, special, who has the ability to heal. And Jesus says, I haven't seen this faith in all of Israel. And when they get back to the centurion's servant's at home, when they get back to that place, the centurion's servant is healed. See, some people would look at a particular passage like this and say, it is prescriptive as if we're in God's kitchen and we're baking a cake and we're throwing in ingredients. And in order for God to move, in order for God to move, all the pieces of the puzzle have to be in place. And if I just emulate what I see in scripture, then God will do this. Well, who's the real God in that situation? Who's really in the position of omnipotence and all-powerful if God can be manipulated Listen, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus didn't have to touch anyone or go anywhere, and the guy was healed. In Luke chapter 8 right here, verse 12, Jesus makes his way with Peter, James, and John, and the mother and father, and the woman, the young girl, is healed. When I was in college, I had a friend of mine who was new in their walk with Christ, new in their faith journey. He was a big guy. He was a bodybuilder and he had childlike faith, but I think it was a bit misdirected. He was going to the same word of faith church, a very large church in New Jersey, in Edison, New Jersey, very large word of faith church and believing God to do amazing things in his life. And every time we would see him, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. I'm believing God. I'm believing God. And anytime you would express doubt toward him, he would remind you of how you didn't have faith and how God wasn't going to move on your behalf because you just didn't have faith. Well, reading passages of scripture like this and taking them as being prescriptive instead of descriptive, they're describing what actually happened, not necessarily telling us that we need to replicate them. Taking a passage of scripture like this as being prescriptive He came across a problem one day when his dog that he loved very dearly, many of you have a dog that you love dearly, many of you have a dog that you don't love dearly, (laughs) many of you have a cat that you love or you don't love, a goldfish that you love or you don't love, whatever it might be, a pet, my friend had a dog that he loved dearly, and the dog got sick and the dog died. And so because faith was so essential, an essential ingredient before God could do anything in his life, and because he didn't realize it, but he was actually in the driver's seat, not Jesus, he fasted and he prayed with diligent expectation and sincere heart. I don't know what a dead dog smells like after three days, but my friend knew. Because after three days of laying his hands on that dog and believing God that God would raise that dog from the dead, he began to realize with the maggots and the flies and the stench that it didn't look like his dog was coming back from the dead. And so my friend dropped back, and he punted his faith in Jesus. Last I heard, soon after that, my friend was in a strip club as a male dancer, Because he had made the classic mistake of putting Jesus back on trial. That because Jesus didn't come through for him the way he expected Jesus to do for him, and even though he had faith that God could do it, because God didn't bring his dog back from the dead, listen, he believed that God could do it. But the fact that God didn't shook him up. He dropped back and he punted no longer following Jesus. I'm not sure that he was really following Jesus as much as a formula for a life that would be free of inconvenience and free of discomfort. Many people are following Jesus, quote unquote, following Jesus for no other reason than really because they want Jesus to give them a better car, a nicer job, a better marriage. And if you follow Jesus for those reasons, there will come a day when you come to the end of your rope and you find out what you're really made of. You'll find out what your faith in Jesus, quote unquote, your faith in Jesus is really made of. This passage of scripture is not here for us to have a prescriptive approach with God that if I have enough faith, then God will do fill in the blank. That's not what this passage is about. You've got to be careful in your life that you're not putting Jesus back on trial based on how he does or doesn't come through for you. The issue was settled 2,000 years ago. We're reading the account of it here, and this is what it means to have faith. To have faith means that I don't need for Jesus to do another miraculous sign and wonder in my life. If he does, awesome. Can Jesus do it? Yes, he can. Does he have to do it to prove himself? No, he doesn't. Who has the real majority? A tour of faith, the person who requires Jesus to keep doing these things or the person who believes the word of God, believes that the word of God has settled the issue and that we are now reading an account of historical events that really happened that set in stone the unchangeable, divine, glorifying nature of Jesus Christ as presented in the Bible. You have faith in Jesus? All you need is to believe that these these stories in the scriptures are true. Whether or not God does anything different in your life and my life is icing on the cake. This passage is here recorded in scripture for all time, for all generations of people everywhere to take hope in the fact that there is a God. His name is Jesus. Jesus' identity is set in stone. That's what this passage of scripture is about. And so when you're at the end of your rope, Jesus is holding. He's holding on to you. He's carrying you. He's there with you. You don't need to doubt and question his identity because he's always verified it right here. You may have an incurable disease. You might have health issues in your life. You might have a multitude of issues in your life that cause you to be fearful and afraid, but you don't have to be uncertain about the identity of Jesus. A number of weeks ago, many of you know that I'm a cancer survivor. Over four years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. I'm doing pretty good now, except once in a while, I have to get a chest x-ray, and I had one several weeks ago because of breathing difficulties, and that's a concern for me because my cancer involved affected my lungs, my breathing. When I went to the radiologist and the report came back, the report came back that it looks like you have COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. When I made the mistake of going onto the internet and beginning to research what COPD is all about, I'll tell you what, scared the life out of me. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is a permanent progressive condition. There is no cure for COPD. The person with COPD has increasingly worse difficulties breathing until they get to the point where they cannot dress themselves because they get out of breath. You cannot climb a flight of stairs. You can't even walk on level ground. It gets progressively worse and worse. And so I was fearful for a number of weeks. Yes, I, man of little faith, fearful. Had to go to a pulmonologist a pulmonary doctor and do this series of tests and he said hey don't worry it's a misdiagnosis you're full of hot air (laughs) my tests were so good (laughs) see you might be average in terms of your hot air quotient i'm above average he said, you tested above average in all the breathing tests. It's a misdiagnosis. You have some breathing difficulty due to allergies. Now living back in the Northeast, like I used to live as a kid when I used to have childhood asthma. So I don't have COPD, but I'll tell you what, when I was faced with the possibility of that type of a prognosis, that type of a diagnosis, you better believe that I very quickly again was reminded of how much I need to continually depend upon Jesus, rest upon Jesus, that even if I had COPD, even if I had a relapse in cancer, even if I had something indescribable or terrible happen to me, it does not matter because I've settled the issue about the identity of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to keep putting him on trial based on what's happening in my life. How many hoops do I need to have Jesus jump through before I finally settle the issue and say, the Bible says it, This is a historical account for good reason, so that I can believe it today, so that I can put my faith in a real person who's above and beyond my circumstances, so that no weapon formed against me. Listen, no weapon formed against me will prosper. Now, I find it interesting here with the 12-year-old woman, look at the situation that happens here. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. Now we know from the story that Jesus Takes her by the hand, verse 54, says, Child arise, and her spirit returned. So she truly was dead. She got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. Further verifying that they weren't dreaming, and she probably needed nourishment based on whatever her condition was. They were amazed, and he charged them Don't tell anybody what you just saw. Come on, Jesus. I mean, why does does Jesus do anything in your life and mine in the first place? This is a miraculous event that's happened here. When Jesus does something in your life, don't you want to go out and tell the whole world what Jesus did? Of course you do, and you're appropriate to do that. It's appropriate to tell other people what Jesus is doing in your life. But here, there's something a little bit different going on. This is a training op for three guys who later on in Luke chapter 9, we're going to read about them going up on a mountain with Jesus. Peter, James, and John. They're going to go up on a mountainside with Jesus and Jesus is going to change in his appearance. His clothing is going to become dazzling white, whiter than anybody could wash the clothing. And who's going to be there with Jesus? Peter, James, and John. This is a training op. Did Jesus need Peter, James, and John to be able to heal this girl? We know just from Luke chapter 7 that Jesus didn't need to take anybody along to heal this person. He healed the centurion servant without even touching him, without even going to his house. Jesus does not need any of us to do anything. There's nothing prescriptive about this passage of Scripture. It is totally descriptive about the nature, character, and identity of Jesus. Jesus. we need to get that through our heads. It's not what we're doing that's going to move God. It's what God is doing that's moving us. Amen. Listen, I can fix a washing machine without the aid of my nine and seven-year-old sons. In fact, I can do it a lot quicker without my nine and seven-year-old sons. <laughs> I can I can clean the bottom of a filthy lawnmower when it gets clogged. First, I unplug the spark plug, take note, and I get a long stick. I don't use my fingers or my hands, take note. I can clean the bottom of a lawnmower a lot quicker without my nine and seven-year-old sons asking me, Dad, why are you disconnecting the spark plug? Dad, why are you using a stick? Dad, why did the lawnmower get clogged? I can do that a lot quicker, and so can you. But I'm not cleaning a lawnmower. That's not what I'm doing as I clean the lawnmower. I'm not fixing a washing machine as I'm fixing the washing machine. I'm investing in the life of a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and spending time with them and pouring into them and discipling them and helping them navigate through the course of life that a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old so desperately need. And what Jesus is doing here is he's training Peter, James, and John because after a three-year time period, Jesus is going to say, you take it from here, guys. This is a training op for the men as unqualified as they seem to be are being qualified by God to pick up the mantle of ministry and to spread the gospel so that one of those guys preaches a sermon in Acts chapter 2, and more than 3,000 men get saved. That is success. Success requires a successor. And until you are investing in the life of someone, nobody is going to know anything that only you know. It's not about speed, size, and numbers. Listen, we've all, we've all drank the Kool-Aid, every single one of us. Speed, size, and numbers. You slow me down, get out of the way. Whether it's in ministry, whether it's in the family, whether it's at work. And what happens is we don't have a legacy We don't have the impact that we would otherwise have if we would slow down and realize it is not about speed. Listen, if it was about speed, Jesus wouldn't have even gone to see the 12-year-old girl. This one was for Peter, James, and John. This one is for you guys. I want you to see who I am because you're going to need to know who I am when I'm no longer here. You're going to need to know that I'm in control. When you face people who are at the end of their rope, you need to know that I am there. When you face a situation in your life, when you're at the end of your rope, you need to know that the identity of Jesus Christ is cast in stone, unchangeable, immovable. It's in the scriptures. Nothing else needs to happen in your life and mine, or you might end up being a male dancer somewhere. God's objective in your life and in mine is not speed and size and numbers. God's objective in your life and in mine is impact and legacy. Impact and legacy take time. You've got to build into other people's lives. You've got to invest yourself in other people. Show other people what you're doing, how you're doing it, why you're doing it. And as you do that, you're increasing the legacy of Jesus Christ if you're living for him. We're showing people how to do what we learned how to do so that they are spared the frustration and the difficulty of going through trying to learn something that nobody taught them. Haven't you ever felt that way? You wish somebody would have taken the time with you to show you the ropes, teach you what you had to learn through the school of hard knocks. That's why you are here in the meantime. That's why I'm here to slow down long enough to invest in your children, to disciple your children, to take time with your children, to take time in ministry. to invest. Listen, I've been all over the world, different parts of the world doing ministry. And oftentimes somebody will come and, and not understand why we're doing something the way we're doing it. And the flesh in me sometimes gets frustrated. I don't have time to stop now to sit down and to show you the reasons why. And then God shows me, listen, you better take the time. You better take the time to educate somebody who hasn't been given what you've been given because until you do that, you're not passing on the legacy. You're not helping them understand and making life easier for them. And you know what? It's not just me. There are other people who have been down roads that I haven't been on whom I can learn from. And I find that there are a lot more people, much more patient than I am, who are willing to say, Mike, let me tell you why I'm doing it this way. From what I've learned. And I'm so thankful. That God has smacked me upside of the head multiple times to get me to slow down, to listen and learn from other people who have been places that I haven't gone, but I am going to go there someday. And I need the wisdom and the insight and the experience from what they have learned to spare me from losing the legacy and the impact that I would otherwise have if I would keep my mouth shut open my eyes and ears up and simply learn from them. Did Jesus need Peter, James, and John? No, he didn't. But Jesus is being the ultimate strategist and telling them, don't say anything to anybody because this one is for you. And I'm doing this to teach and train you because someday I'm not going to be here, but you will be. And you need to know that who I am is unchanging. And what I can do is superhuman. And that whenever anybody comes to the end of their rope, they don't need to fear be perplexed, be depressed and discouraged, because I, Jesus, am with you. And I, Jesus, am unchanging.
0: You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.